on this episode of the Highlander Podcast. We talk with Travis Seeholzer, owner and mountain operations manager at Beaver Mountain. We discuss the history of the mountain, the ski industry in Utah, and what it's like owning the oldest family-run ski resort in the country. Welcome back to the Highlander Podcast. Uh, my name is Chase Anderson, and today I'm excited to have Travis Seeholzer with me. Uh, Mountain Ops manager and and over of owner of Beaver Mountain. Correct. Good to have you here. Yeah, it's fun. I think what you guys are doing is awesome. Um, you know, as we were just discussing some of this history, it's nice to get it down and um, on the record. We we we're involved in a lot of the history. My family, obviously, in skiing in northern Utah, but even some of our records are. Uh, there's a few holes in them, so it's nice to get this down for posterity. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, as some people know, that these conversations exist so we can share some of that history here in the region, share all the outdoor, recre- outdoor recreation opportunities that exist up here. So glad to have you on. Um, can you share a little bit just about um, your role with the organization and maybe a brief history of, of Beaver Mountain for those who don't know? It's, sure. it's got a long, rich history as <laughs> the oldest family-run and owned and operated resort in the country? Correct, to our knowledge, and I'm pretty confident that's probably accurate. Um, There's not a lot of ski areas really older than the original site of Beaver Mountain. Um, In the Air Mountain West, there are a few. And, you know, the whole ski industry has an interesting history of when, you know, lifts first started appearing on mountains, and and a lot of it was really predicated post-World War II and even the 10th Mountain Division, which was the troops that fought on skis, which my uncle Loyal Seeholzer was a member of. Um, mm. And they, they played a big role in, in the ski industry following that. Um, the founder of Bell was actually a member of the 10th Mountain Division, and, and they were kind of the experts at the time because they, you know, skiing was in its infancy in this country and in Europe. It had been around for a long time, so a lot of the Europeans would even come kind of consult and look at these possibilities for ski areas, which uh, Beaver was one of them. Um, so as far as my role goes, I'm, I'm the mountain ops manager, which is Beaver's a small operation. So we do, we always say we wear a lot of hats and we do a lot of everything. Um, but I'm basically over uh, the lift department, all the grooming, a um, little bit of everything. Um, pretty much everything falls under my purview in one way or the other. And that's changing rapidly as things get a little more technical as far as, you know, even at Beaver, we have, you know, our vehicle mechanics are also our lift mechanics and they're very good at it, but most bigger ski areas would have a separate lift department, a separate vehicle department. Um, And we've changed a little bit through the history of Beaver, but um, I am a third generation owner. So my grandparents, Harry and Luella Seeholzer founded Beaver. it was technically Logan City. It was a Logan City run rope tow at the present site of Beaver Mountain in 1939. And that was the first year that Logan Canyon was open to winter travel. So you think back, there used to be an old road and then they moved the road, but they didn't keep it open in the winter. And my grandfather, Harry, would, uh, he and his buddies as teenagers, they would do, I guess you call it property management, they'd go shovel off roofs of summer homes because no one had a way to get to them. So they would go check on these places and look at them. And then he also would do ski tours. Usually, I think they did six and eight day tours through the range looking at snowpack with the water people because obviously they didn't have instrumentation and things we do now to monitor water. And so that's where some of these sites were identified as having consistent snowpacks and then you know, beyond that, then they started looking at the possibilities for ski runs and different things of that nature. And the two, my understanding is the two 
final contestants for a ski area in Logan Canyon were the Tony Grove area above to- Tony Grove Lake and the present site of Beaver. And and I've skied at Tony Grove a lot, and a lot of people do, and they get a ton of snow, and it's an awesome area. It's very alpine. You know, it's a little higher elevation than Beaver, which would be a nice thing. And every time I go to Tony Grove, I look around and picture a ski area there. It's like, how would this happen? And I, I really agree with their decision. I mean, there's some amazing skiing at Tony Grove, but it, a lot of it is pretty advanced. It's hard to find more of the kind of intermediate beginner terrain, and the runs at Beaver are probably longer than most of what you would get up there, just top to bottom. Um, so it's always interesting to think, you know, what if and what if they had done this? And and it was a lot of that was driven in those days by the Forest Service. Um, the Logan Ski Club was instrumental. That's who really started the tow. And then eventually my grandparents took over the operation and took over the tow. Um, so Beaver Mountain was its current location for a year. And then they moved to what's known as the Sinks up near the summit of Logan Canyon, which was called Summit Valley. And the side of that old rope toe is is visible from the road. It's You can't really tell it's there, but when you drive up by the main sinks parking lot, if you look back to the west or the right going up the canyon, that's where that went. And I'm very happy it didn't stay there. <laughs> you know, I think for their purposes then it was okay. And the reason they moved to the sinks was because there was no road into Beaver Mountain at that time. So they just parked on Highway 89 where our turnoff is, where Beaver Creek runs into the Logan River or where Beaver Creek comes into the canyon and would walk in. And I hadn't figured that out for a while looking at the history. It's like, why did they ever move from here up there? And then it kind of makes sense. You know, it was probably a mile plus slog in there on your skis or or walking to get to the rope toe. Um, But it was definitely a different generation, different folks in those days. Um, A lot tougher, really, than we are now. But it's been a a great history. You know, Beaver's... uh, not the biggest ski area by any means. I think we're probably in the mid-size range, and with what's going on in the ski industry now, it's it's more unique to have kind of a family-run, even private ski area with kind of the conglomeration corporations that we're seeing in the ski industry now. How how many acres do you guys operate on right now? Just under a thousand. I think we have nine, like nine hundred and fifty, roughly, um, and that is permitted areas on Utah State Trust land, is who our landlord is. So. Okay. In 2001, we were involved in a land trade, and this was kind of prior to the 2002 Olympics in Utah, um, where the Forest Service traded parcels of land to state trust lands, and it was millions of acres statewide, and we ended up being a part of that. So now we operate on state trust lands, and a lot of people think it's Forest Service or private, um, and it's a good thing, I think. We, We get along with them very well, and, you know, we pay a a premium for a lease there to operate and a lot of people think it's crazy to have a business on property you don't own but that's what we've always done and a big majority of the skiers at least in the western united states operate on federal property with similar leases so it's um so that's pretty typical for the industry yeah yeah some are more private than others in utah it's probably you know the majority are on federal land but some of them are split even a little bit and the advantage is obviously to owning the property is is you can develop and sell and have the real estate and all that, which we do not have. But we always say at Beaver Mountain, um, we're we're a ski mountain or all mountain, not resort. 
you know, we don't have a spa. We don't have a lot of, uh, and we don't have overnight lodging. We're basically a ski hill. And I think we do a pretty good job of it, but we don't have a lot of the frills of a, you know, a park city or a bigger ski area. Do you think that appeals to a certain segment of the market? Do you, do you find that your customers come because of that experience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely not for everyone, and we know that. And when people are, are looking to travel or vacation and come to Beaver, you know, we're very honest with them. It's like if you want a good affordable ski experience, we, we can definitely offer that. You know, if you're looking for bright lights and shopping and art galleries, Park City's probably a little more your style. But, but yeah, we definitely do. And a lot of the locals, I think, like that. And they say, we don't want you to ever change. And change happens. You know, I mean, we, we are slowly modernizing, but um, I think a lot of people do. And I think, again, with the, the change in, in ski areas in the past few years, people appreciate it even more as things become more corporate and... Um, I think some of the allure of the classic ski town has been diminished a little bit by that and the experience and, you know, another beaver line is skiing the way it used to be. Um, and we're a local ski area. You know, we, we need to be affordable for people for their winter recreation. It's not a, you know, a week-long trip where you're spending a lot of money. People are doing this every year, which I think makes for a fantastic work environment. I always tell my new employees it's it's awesome to work at a local resort because you really get to know people and they come – routinely and you get to know these folks and they want to know you and I think it's just a nicer uh, place to be sometimes than a big destination place where the guests are constantly turning over and um, and it's fun to work at a place that people are recreating you know they're not going to the tax guy or the dentist or their insurance salesman they're there to have fun so you know it's a it's a fun environment to be in working and operating in ski area right so you mentioned earlier on that uh as soon as the road opened up Logan Canyon, people were up there skiing, or there's the, the tow rope was installed. Is, is that right? Yeah, it, that's one thing I I really appreciated or took note of in, in diving into the history a little more was how quickly that happened. I mean, right. it was literally so the first year I believe it's 1938 the road was open to uh, what's known as formerly known as the CC Camp, which is just below the Franklin Basin turnoff. So it's probably four miles below Beaver Mountain. And they didn't take it all the way through to Bear Lake at that time, but they actually skied there at the forestry camp and held some races, university races at that time. Mm. And then in 1939, the road was open all the way to Bear Lake. And that winter, there was a rope tow at the side of Beaver Mountain. And that to me was kind of mind boggling that, okay, the road's open, let's go ski, you know, which was awesome. <laughs> and, and with the hurdles that they had, I mean, walking into the ski area and the original rope tow there ran on a, a DeSoto car motor and it was at the top of the hill, so someone had to hike up there every morning and start mm. this thing so everyone could grab a hold of the rope and get up the mountain. Um, and again, pretty pretty hardy folks in those days, I think, is the takeaway. Yeah, That's interesting to me that outdoor recreation mm. in our region goes back that far, and there's that history of people you know, finding any way possible to, to get out and recreate. And um, what, what was the state of the industry at that time? Do you, do you happen to know? Um, part of the history? There really wasn't a lot of industry. I mean, everyone, I think regionally, everyone was kind of figuring it out a little bit. You know, the in the West, kind of your major regions, um, kind of the Tahoe, you know, Northern California, Sierra region, Pacific Northwest had some stuff going on in Washington and Oregon. Utah, obviously, was a, an early player in, in, you know, ski lifts. But I know, I know my grandfather, Harry, we have a photo of him with some wood skis that were... And the caption is written right on the photograph, and it says, first bought in skis in 1917. 
um, and reading some of his memoirs, he built his own skis prior to that, and they would make them, and they were almost disposable. You know, they didn't really worry about breaking them because he'd just make another pair. Mm. Um, and that would have been, you know, probably 1908 through 1911. And then when he actually bought them at, I believe the name is Stoney's Sporting Goods in Logan. Mm. And so that, I, I don't know when they started carrying skis, but I don't imagine it was much before that. And I think that was really the, the birth of the ski industry, you know, kind of as we know it now. <clears throat> Do you mind mm. uh, peeling back the curtain a little bit on on day-to-day operations? We've talked a little bit about the history. We could dive a lot more into that. But what's what's the day-to-day look like for you, um, you know, during the off-season and during the season um, and, and well, ramping up to the season? It's pretty unique, I think, in that we have such a huge transition being a seasonal business for the most part, summer to winter. Um, and we, we're doing a little more at the ski area, and I think we'll get into that a little bit in the summer. But um, we basically go from – we have seven full-time employees, mostly maintenance staff that does lift maintenance, vehicle maintenance, trail work, um, depending on excuse me, what projects we have going on. Um, and then in about a two-week period in the fall, we go up to 120 employees. So that's pretty chaotic wow. at that point. And these are seasonal workers, a lot of them college students. Um, we do have a lot of returning seasonal people, which anyone that's ever been in the seasonal world understands that, and all scary areas struggle with it, keeping those people coming back that have a complimentary summer gig. You know, we have uh, you know, farmers, fishing guides, firefighters, landscapers, people that have something they can go do in the summer and then come back in the in the winter. And it was interesting. We, you know, we had a fire camp in our parking lot two years ago, and it seemed like every person I met there worked in the ski industry in the winter. And these guys were kind of career fire people. Um, but that's a little bit how we operate moving into the winter. Um, we do – we kind of say a lot of times people – tend to think that we just go on vacation the entire summer and show up and turn everything on in the fall and we, yeah. we ski. And there's so much more to it than that in the maintenance. And we start the second we close getting ready for the next year. And I've said often that, you know, we really do our work in the summer. The hours are better because <laughs> we work a lot of hours in the winter, but our, our projects and improvements to the ski area and maintenance of the ski area happen in the summer. And then in the winter, you know, we're there a lot, but we're we're in the ski mode at that point. And so when it gets to that time, me personally, um, I work on what we call our early crew. So we go to the ski area at 5 a.m. and handle snow removal if needed, a little bit of grooming in the morning. We do ski reports. Pretty much most things go out through Ski Utah's media so we can send a ski report. And the, and the ski report in Ski Utah has to be in that early. And we do some of that through instrumentation through our weather station, but we we still like to to see the snow. And, you know, back in the day when my dad would show up, and this was years and years ago, it was kind of a kick of the boot in the parking lot. That's where your ski report came <laughs> from. Yeah, it looks like about five inches. Um, and we've always tried to be fairly conservative. I mean, you want to start a discussion, talk about snow totals and reporting snow with ski areas. And I think most of our locals understand we are fairly conservative. And if, you know, if we report five inches, there's going to be five plus, maybe a little bit. Mm. Um, but we have a, uh, you know, a maintenance crew that does a little bit of that grooming in the morning. We do roughly 34 hours a night of grooming, which tends to surprise people a lot. So we run three shifts a night. Um, two of those are more free grooming. One is is train parks, which we have two of. And so one of those cats and operators is dedicated to uh, train park grooming. And so everything ideally is buffed out and nice in the morning. Um, 
And we're in the weather business, so you never know what's going to happen. And we try when we have weather coming around to groom later shifts so that, uh, you know, there's not a ton of new snow on the runs. A lot of people like a few inches on top of groomers and really enjoy that, but you just never know, you know, and we say even depending on weather, it's worse than being farmers sometimes. I mean, that's our Mm -hmm. livelihood and what we depend on. And skiers, you know, watch weather as closely as anyone and being in the business just amplifies that a little bit. But, uh, um, you know, later in the day, we have all of our, uh, or in the morning, you know, most of our staff arrives at the ski area between 7.30 and 8, and that's in all departments. The lift crew, again, on snow mornings and, and days we have to deal with weather is busier because they're sweeping all the chairs off and preparing their loading station for guests. And we've always really taken a lot of pride in that our lifts are going to be spinning at 9 o'clock whether we got two feet of snow or not, you know, and we're going to be ready and on top of it. And it's a lot more work than people realize. I mean, snow is fun and I love deep snowfall, but when you're trying to deal with it and clean parking lots and everything else, it becomes a lot of work and you get in a storm cycle and that kind of continues day to day and it tends to get a little blurry because you're trying to get some powder shots in in the day and go skiing too. And, you know, that's why we're all there. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, we're resort-wise, we're we're growing and adding a few positions because we're just realizing, you know, our, our, our numbers are good, our visitation is good, and we're needing to expand, you know, all of our facilities as well as personnel. But during the day, I work closely with the ski patrol, um, you know, as well as lift maintenance if we have any lift issues come up and staffing with people. But uh, it's a pretty good office. It's a pretty nice place to be. Yeah. What is uh, What's a good day look like for, for Beaver Mountain in terms of visitation? Um like our real tip-over days, we call them, but, uh, you know, President's Day is routinely a real big day. In the past two years, it's been kind of a perfect storm of weather. Um, Twenty-five to 2,700 guests is a big day. Um, and I, we're, we're typical as skiers. Most weekdays are pretty slow as far as you're not going to see a lot of lift lines. Um, you know, people ski on the weekends, which Friday is pretty much a weekend for us anymore. We do a lot of... Uh, uh, university students, we teach classes through our ski school, you know, through Utah State that the majority of those end up on Friday. We always try to figure out how we can spread them out a little bit, but that's just how the schedule works. Um, but yeah, generally in that realm, you know, visitation for a year, last year we were around 120,000 skier visits is wow. what the industry calls wow. it, which was up about 20% from the season yeah. prior. Which... Do you know where most people are coming from? I'm assuming from, from lo- like locally, Cache Valley, the region... Yeah, um, I would say, you know, 85% of our guests are local, um, meaning, you know, the biggest majority of that is Cache Valley. But we also have a pretty good contingent from western Wyoming, Rock Springs, Mm -hmm. Evanston, Kemmer, um, even down towards Manila. We have school groups come from Manila, which is a long bus ride, you know, so those kids are on a bus for a while, but it's fun when they get to come. And we're noticing all the time, and I think sometimes we don't appreciate how many people from somewhere that we are getting, you know, we've always viewed ourselves as such a local resort, but you start looking at our parking lot and you see license plates from 12 different states. And, and I think we are pulling a few people maybe from kind of the Ogden area and um, with some of what again has gone on with pricing and crowds at some of the other ski areas, I think we're seeing a little bit of the overflow of that people finding beaver now. And we've been, lucky enough recently to have a fair bit of national publicity for the ski area and it's a little frightening because there are a lot of people taking note and showing up which is great but um, we're having to grow along with that right yeah it's a good problem to have right? it is absolutely 
Um, so how do you insulate yourself from, I mean, a, a really warm season? Like, how do you? How, how does a, what does a resort do in, in that in that instance? I know that you're offering more opportunities during the summer to be more of a year-round resort. Yeah, what what do you do in that? Kind of instance? always the trick. You really hope. It stays cold. Um, we, we saw a great example of that um, a season ago. Uh, 2017 winter is the worst snowpack I've ever been around in my time mm. at the ski area in, you know, 30-some years. And the plus that we took away from it, and, and even on our down years, we always, if you really look more globally, um, we're blessed in Utah and we're spoiled. And even on a down year, we're still better than probably 80% of the ski world. Um, we don't necessarily like it. We like a lot of snow. But that year was kind of a prime example of that. And we don't make snow at Beaver, which to your point, we've considered a lot more heavily. We don't have water, enough water. The water needs are significant. And, you know, the investment never really made sense for our operation. But if you did have one or two really down years, it would make a little more sense. And that year was kind of an interesting example because we were open and we were covered and we were skiing. And, and it seems like every little bit north you got, there was more snowfall. Like even into Wyoming, they had a pretty good year, but Utah just kind of was in a little donut hole. And we, were, we had better snow, I think, really than any resort in Utah, which wasn't saying much because it wasn't great. Mm. But it was really an eye-opener of the other regions have non-winners occasionally. Tahoe's had several. And the Northwest has had a few where, you know, mid-January, there's not a flake of natural snow on the mountain. And, you know, somehow we have avoided that. And I, I always hear about um, the winter of 76, 77, Beaver Mountain was open for about two weeks uh, wow. in February. And I'm sure those two weeks were pretty grim anyway. And, you know, that's the nightmare scenario for a resort operator. We sell a lot of season passes and we've got a lot of passes out there. And, you know, we tell people that, there's no guarantee if it doesn't snow, mm. you know, there's not a lot we can do about it. But you, you don't want to run into that scenario, obviously. Right. Um, and as a lot of resorts have kind of expanded somewhat, I guess, because of climate change, but also just for uh, revenue year-round, trying to become more year-round resorts. And we're looking into some other options that way. We do a lot of uh, camping currently at the mountain. We have RV hookups tent camping. We rent our facilities a lot. We do a lot of weddings and um, family reunions, youth groups, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. And just completed a mountain bike trail where it's 90% complete, looking to hold a lot of races. And this is cross-country mountain biking at this point. We currently don't have any lifts or downhill biking, mm -hmm. but kind of dipping our toe in with the cross-country thing and uh, see where that goes. And we may at some point, you know, run lifts for biking as well. But, um, you know, last year, was a good consistent snow snowfall year, but it was it was a cold winter, which was encouraging to be honest, because the year before was not. And I'm like, it's just going to be 40 now. That's what's happening. And last year was we were in the 20s, probably averaged you know lower than our our average temp mm. um, in the 20s was pretty consistent, which I thought was great. Right. And for you guys, what what's good snowpack? Um, annually, we we have about a 400-inch average. Um, I think if you were to take that over the last 12 years, it's probably closer to 350, mm -hmm. honestly. Um, last year, we did, I think, around 375 to 380. And we, just regionally, we 
we didn't get the storms the Wasatch did in March. I mean, we had plenty of snow and skiing was good, but there was a lot of snowfall, southern Colorado, um, even, you know, the Ogden area mountains, which were usually really similar to, got a few storms later in the year. And some years it kind of boils down to one or two systems just kind of missing you a little bit. I mean, there's there's only so many real storm cycles you get during a year. and but But last year was so consistent. We figured it up at one point, the tail end of January into February, we plowed snow 27 out of 30 days. You know, and those weren't necessarily big storms, but enough we had to go push snow four to six inches, which is so ideal. (laughs) Snow stayed great. It was cold. Snow was soft. It was truly that Utah snow that everyone loves. And every time anyone came skiing, conditions were good, you know, and we like big storms too. And we had some of those mixed in, but just having a consistent snowfall like that is so ideal from slope maintenance and grooming and and plowing and and dealing with the snow. So um, if they were all like that, I'd be very happy. Right. I, you know, going back to the history of the resort that it's been open for more than 75 years. You guys had your, this is our 81st. You had your 81st. Okay. Um, What's, what's that dynamic like being part of a family owned and operated business? Who's still involved in in the family? What's that look like? Um, it's a super fun place to grow up, <laughs> for one thing. I, you know, even my kids and I took it for granted. Um, so my mother, Marge, is, is still the boss, absolutely, and she works 65 hours a week probably in the winter. She's at the ski area, you know, five to six days a week by 6 a.m. And, um, and she's a staple. If you go get your lift ticket, yeah, she's there. She, I mean, retirement isn't in her vocabulary, her or my dad's. And um, so they're... There are three, well, really four generations still working at Beaver Mountain in one capacity or another. Um, the corporation is my sister, Annette West, and her husband, Jeff, and my wife, Christy, and then my mother, Marge. Um, and I have an older brother who is a serious ski bum. He's not involved in the resort, and sometimes I think he was smarter than I am because every powder day he seems to be in the lift line and I'm pushing snow. Um, and he's... He's at the resort a lot and, you know, loves to come there and is involved, but he's not employed there. Um, But we have, you know, multiple generations. My daughters have both worked there in different capacities at this point. And just just the ability to grow up there. And I I know a few other families um, that have grown up that way through our contacts in the industry. And, you know, you try not to take it for granted, but not everybody gets to go climb on a snow cat and go cut a Christmas tree um, or go ski on a mountain in November with a snow cat. And, you know, for me, I just rode up with my grandma and my mother when I was a kid every Saturday, you know, I'd be on the early bus and have to go. And my kids are the same way. Sometimes they have to go with me at five o'clock. And that's just kind of how it works. And, and my older daughters now are driving, so that's changed a little bit. But um, it's uh, it's been an awesome family dynamic. We're actually working on and, and going to complete this fall a kind of a memorial um, relief of my grandparents to honor them that we're installing at the mountain. And we've been working on it for a couple of years with with the family that was involved prior to my parents buying mm-hmm. out their siblings. Um, they all still you know, get along great. And a lot of their kids are still at the mountain, even though they're not employed there. But uh, we are working on this and, and planning on dedicating on October 5th and probably inviting a lot of people, old beaver folks and people from the industry, hopefully will be interested in coming and seeing that because it's going to be cool. It'll be a neat thing. Oh, that's great. Has it ever not been fun? I know that <laughs> I know that when your passion becomes your job, for some, it just 
it it doesn't become yeah, it's, it's not fun anymore. It's how, a fine how line. does it stay fun for you? Um, you know, the example I use a lot is my dad, Ted. Um, I only skied with him. I think twice in my whole life because mm. he basically quit skiing. Mm. And growing up, we had a wall of trophies in our basement of races he won all around the Intermountain West. And he was an avid skier. Um, and I won't say he wasn't having fun in his capacity at Beaver, but I kind of take that to heart and think I don't, I don't want this to become such a chore that I don't enjoy the reason we're all here. Mm-hmm. And try to relay that to our employees as well. I mean. The, the job comes first when you're there, but, you know, we – the reason we're all there is to slide on snow, really. And a lot of our employees are the same way, and you, it's a fine line because it it can be pressure-filled and there's a lot going on. And, you know, it's like anything. It can be work. Even in the summer, um, my kids love to go camp at Beaver. Personally, I'd just as soon go somewhere else. <laughs> I'm there plenty. And I try not to take it for granted because it is cool and I, I appreciate them liking to go there and be there. Um, but I'm there a lot and people ask as well, why don't you guys have a place up here? Why don't you just live here? I'm like, well, this is still work. You know, it's nice to leave uh, occasionally. But even the drive, you know, is so awesome and, and it never gets old through the seasons. You know, it's I think I've got a bit of a commute, and I'll talk to people that commute to Ogden or somewhere. It's like, that's probably a, a similar drive, but mine's a lot nicer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not an inter- interstate and in Logan Canyon. But, uh, yeah, it can be intense at times. I mean, when we're doing big projects, and we're trying to finish them up in the fall, and we're working in the weather. And, you know, as a kid, I picked up thousands of rocks, and I'm sure I hated every minute of it. I mean, when I was 12, 13 years old, we would walk up ski runs throwing rocks into buckets, and a lot of farm kids can relate to that. And, you know, being a a young person, I didn't love it. (laughs) You know, I mean, I liked working at the ski area, but I didn't like picking up rocks. And people will say to me sometimes, oh, you guys ought to clean this place up. You ever thought of cleaning up some rocks? And I just want to slap them. It's like, you have no idea how many rocks I've picked up here. Um, you know, and going back to these these historical times, and it, it's always kind of that walk three miles to school uphill both ways, and I'd get that from my dad. But diving into it, it, it's true. I mean, the stuff that they did and how they accomplished things, literally, you know, handsaws and axes and just lesser equipment that we have now to, to improve a mountain. Anything you do on a mountain construction-wise and everything else is – it's more expensive. It takes more time. And a lot of people have no idea what goes into making a scary run. There's so much behind the scenes. And as people become more involved in our operation through employment or otherwise, they're always just amazed at what goes on that we don't just show up and ski. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was my next question is, are, what are some of the, the biggest infrastructure changes that you've seen over your time being involved? Um, power was probably the big one in my era. Um, so I believe it was 1989, and it, it maybe was 88. We actually had a fire. We, we operated strictly on generated power at that time. So as a kid, the first thing you did when you showed up at the ski area was start the generator because we had nothing, no fridges, no lights, no anything. And we would go stoke the coal furnace and start heating the lodge. And we'd have to walk down and turn on this huge generator that is very loud. And as a kid, it was spooky and going down there. My cousins tell stories about it and hiding and scaring each other, turning off the generator. And that's just what we did. Um, But we had a fire that started overnight that was fed by a diesel tank, um, which we used to fuel snowcats and some groomers. Some guys actually went up at three in the morning, which was, I think, a little rare and found this fire. And and that building and generators burned down and the ski area was, was done. 
you know, we had no power, we were done. And I, I want to say we were closed for just over a week and we were back operating. And it was a testament to the ski industry and the community, people offering to help and other resorts offering to accept our passes, stepping mm -hmm. up. Um, I believe Larry Miller offered trucks from the Midwest to bring generators out to us and, and everybody community-wise was very supportive of this. And it was a tragedy, but the, I think the bright side after that was we got power. We got grid power that we brought in. We paid to bring in from Garden City, from Bear Lake, and we could turn on a light switch now, <laughs> which was wow. pretty amazing. And then in... Um, I think it was 1992, we got phones. So prior to that, everything had been on radios. So we worked off a repeater on Mount Ogden, and we had a radio at Beaver Mountain to our office in Logan. And then my parents actually had one in their bedroom at home, which became a little more of an issue when we started night skiing because there wasn't always someone by the radio in our office. So they would get calls in the you know late at night to call an ambulance or a lift problem or wow. whatever the case may be. So having phones was kind of a big deal. And that's been quite a while ago now, but it, you know, I, I definitely remember the radio. I mean, not, we'd, we'd try to troubleshoot a lift issue and we're talking on a handheld radio. So it's that classic story. This has been relayed five times until it gets to the guy we're talking to at the lift company. And by that point, he may be ordering an outhouse, you know, <laughs> the way things get convoluted. But uh, yeah, those were obviously pretty, pretty major, um, you know, and then some of the lift expansion after that as the industry changed. Um, of all the original chairlifts at Beaver, all of them have been basically replaced but one. Um, and it's been overhauled significantly, but replaced and made larger, more capacity by going from a double to a triple chair. So uh, along with that, I know that you've built a, a really great partnership with Common Ground. So kind of tying in that infrastructure, I know you've built, there's a new space that's been built relatively new, last couple of years, yeah. right, yeah, with Common Ground. Can you mm -hmm. speak to that partnership? Yeah, it's been hugely successful, for one. Um, and it kind of goes back a little bit. I think the, the real start of that was my dad, Ted. Common Ground's been around Beaver Mountain for years and years without their own space. And they basically... and. and just for a little info, it's an adaptive sports community here in the Valley, and they do winter and summer recreation, but they've had a big presence at Beaver with basically any kind of disability you can imagine. Some I didn't even know existed, and they're, they handle these people well and are trained to work with them and, and get the most out of their day. And, you know, a lot of them are paralyzed to some extent, and so they're in sit skis. And in those days, you know, our main lift, the dream lift, is a, a short walk up a hill. It seems short unless you're pushing someone in a sit ski up that yeah. hill. And that's how they operated prior to that is they would kind of base out of the lodge, and you'd watch these guys there. And a lot of them are volunteers, but they would push these individuals in their sit skis up, and that's just kind of what they did. And my dad always kind of had an idea and a dream to give them a home at Beaver Mountain mm -hmm. that would make their life a little easier easier and um, we've never had an outside company contractor anybody at Beaver Mountain with a facility um, beyond something under our umbrella and this idea started about four years ago maybe five years ago to really start funding this and look at what was going to happen and see what Sitlar landlords take on this was and excuse me, it was uh, through Common Ground and then an individual named Eric Clevin, um, who's a good friend of mine, but he's he has his own foundation and he has a disabled daughter and he was really the, the workhorse behind the whole thing that got it done. But 
now we do have a, a nice facility for them, and it's actually right on grade with the Dreamlift, so they literally come right out of their building and can slide right over to the maze and get on the lift. And the first year, um, 17, their participation went up over 300%. So it's wow. a huge success story. And they're there every day. If, it's not typical that they would have a walk-in. Usually it's kind of a setup lesson, but they can take anything from groups. They host a lot of... Um, like wounded warriors, uh, veterans groups that will come through from all over the country, really. Mm. Um, you know, the biggest part of their clientele is local, and a lot of them are pretty regular, and they're amazing to watch. I mean, some of them rip. You know, you see these guys on like skit sit skis that tear it up, and it's fun to see them do it. And some of them maybe skied before their disability. I mean, you see, you know, blind people, deaf people, and and for the most part, Common Ground has people trained to, to deal with about anything, um, which is... Uh, it's fun to see. It's it's been a really fun thing to That's do. That's incredible. Do you have any favorite stories from the mountain? Anything that <laughs> jumps out out to you that you can share? Oh, they're endless. Um, I think mine kind of are weather related. Um, and this is another thing with my dad that was always kind of funny is when I was a kid. Again, we didn't have the weather instrumentation and everything else. So when we drove up the canyon in the morning, we never knew what we were going to run into. We knew maybe there was weather forecast. Sometimes we would call uh, the state sheds, the UDOT plow guys, and try to catch them. My dad would try to call them and see what the weather had done. But sometimes on big storms, we'd hit the parking lot, and my dad would just start cussing. And I was laughing because I love big snow. And he would just be grumpy, and, and that was just kind of my dad. But um, – and obviously he likes snow. I mean, our business depended on it, but as I mentioned, there's a lot of work involved. And so we would get up there and see a lot of snowfall. And, you know, when I first started running snowcats, probably when I was 15, 16 years old, it was snowcats have come a long way. And we pulled what we call compactor bars around, which are not tillers. They're just a Europeans call them smoothers, but they're basically just a drag that you kind of smash the snow down with. And so we would be kind of a frantic race to switch over and put bars on in the morning. And all of our grooming in those days was done in the morning. So we would hurry and try to get what we could done. And um, I think of a couple different times, and it's rare in our canyon, uh, but road closure days because of weather, I just like extreme weather. And I, I don't like the scary to be closed. And we're lucky in that that doesn't happen very often. A lot of areas get a lot more wind than we do. Their roads get closed more because of varying factors. But um, I remember two years in a, in a row in particular, and they were both Super Bowl Sunday, that Beaver Mountain was closed due to weather back to back. And the one year, the road closed, I'm trying to think it was open from the Bear Lake side, but not from Logan. And we were up to... I want to say close to 70 inches of snowfall in like three days. Wow. And there was six people on the mountain. And they'd all come over from Bear Lake. And then I think that even closed after that. And we asked a guy. And the snow was pretty heavy. It was not Utah's finest powder. Um, and we were, you know, I mentioned we always tried to have the lift spinning, but it was all we could do that morning because there was just so much heavy snow. And I remember asking a guy, there was literally one guy on the lift for a while. And I said, do you mind if we stop the lift for a minute and shovel out? Because we had a tunnel where the chairs were coming through and we had snow build up under our feet. We were way up in the air trying to sweep. And I wish I had a picture of it. I don't think I have any photos of that. But he's like, no, I don't mind. I the only one here, <laughs> you know, as far as powder turns go, he wasn't missing anything. And I remember, I remember that same day watching a snowboarder come off the catwalk and jump, and caught air off the catwalk. 
and just plugged himself flat. And he had to unstrap and walk out, meaning the snow was so deep and it was heavy that he couldn't move. And he had to unstrap and walk back to the lift. And we're just sitting there watching him because there wasn't anybody there. Um, And then the next year, I believe it was both sides of the canyon. And I, I actually drove, I was going to a Super Bowl party in Garden City with some fellow employees and coworkers and they didn't generally, the canyon was closed from the Logan side and I turned and I think I was driving just this little Honda Accord and I drove over the summit and it was technically closed and I'm sure the state plow driver was not happy with me because he thought he had the whole road to himself and they had their big blower out and there was a wall of snow probably eight feet high in the middle of the road because on the summit the snow will blow in as quickly as they can plow it. And so I come around a corner and there's this big wall of snow and a guy working there and he'd started on the inside out and I just kind of ducked my head and drove on my way and waved at him. But um, there's, you know, there's endless stories and one that's been resurrected a little lately on social media and it was it was really making the, the best out of a bad situation and it wasn't a great situation, but we lost a top bullwheel bearing on Harry's Dream Lift <clears throat> mid-March, which the lift was done for the season, meaning the bullwheel is the big wheel that the cable goes around both top and bottom. And that lift was scheduled to come out the next year. We'd actually already purchased the new lift, so it wasn't in response to this mechanical issue. But um, the first question that came up, Marge's Triple is our only kind of satellite lift that you have to ski to, and you have to ride Harry's Dream to get there. And we were like, how are we going to use Marge's now? And so the first thing we did, I tried to traverse essentially from the top of our facelift to get to Marge's, and we just never done it. You know, it seemed like in theory, yeah, maybe you could do it. And, and we could. It wasn't great. But we ended up getting trailers and hauling people up onto the ridge between the two, and then they could ski down to Marge's and, and ski that side. And we've always built it as cat skiing at the Beave, and we've never had our own cat skiing operation, but everybody took a snow cat up, and, and it was a great snow year. Um, and so it was actually really unfortunate and, and terrible that the lift went down, but, you know, in hindsight, looking back on it, you know, we tried to make the best of it, and people were supportive again. You know, everybody's been so supportive of us in this valley and, and locally forever. Um, but... You know, a lot of us getting together, we could probably tell old beaver stories for days. Um, and growing up and being there, you get, you know, a little more insight. But again, with me, you, you hate to look at the the bad things that happen, but sometimes those are the ones that stick out in your head. But how you kind of got beyond those, like the generator issue. And I was a, a teenager when that happened. But I tell people the one building we have down there, I said the one that looks like it was built in a day because it was. And that was a lot of our ski patrollers built that and came in and pitched in. And we had some expertise on our ski patrol and they all came in and pitched in to get this up and running. And, you know, at the time, I'm sure a lot of tears were shed and it was tragic. And, you know, a lot a lot of growing up in the early days of the mountain, it wasn't a money thing. Um, you know, my parents took multiple mortgages out and my dad's siblings on their homes just to keep the ski area alive. I mean, they, they were definitely not getting rich. And as a kid, I was always known as the rich kid because my parents owned a mountain. Little did they know. <laughs> Doesn't have a lot to do with money. Um, but people had that perception. And, and, you know, now we're doing well and we're paying the bills. But a lot of those years were lean. And um, I think you have to kind of look back on on that history as, as what made you what you are now. This has been fun for me to, to hear mm-hmm. kind of the inner workings at the resort, and it truly is a gem to have it here and, and to hear that side of it as well. Just 
all the effort mm. and, and sweat and hard work and mortgages to, to keep it alive <laughs> I, makes me appreciate it even more. Um, what are you most excited mm. about when it comes to outdoor recreation in our region? And what are the opportunities that you see for, you, you see for growth um, in our area? Um, well, as I kind of alluded to earlier, Beaver Mountain is definitely growing quickly, um, I think along with the valley somewhat, but I think we are, are getting those people from elsewhere. Um, and it, it, it is a little frightening to keep up with. Um, our priorities, I think right now as a resort, is really parking um, and our, our day lodge and bigger capacity, both for rental shop and basically every every aspect of the operation on the the big big days that we've had the mountain handles it fairly well um it's those bottlenecks you know in the base area that we need to expand to to service those needs and you know basically with parking once you have no more parking you're done growing and so we're working with sitla on identifying either some uh, kind of overflow lots that would be just those big days and, and shuttle lots or something a little closer. And, and frankly, anything like that at most ski areas is kind of hard because there's not a lot of flat ground. And so it's difficult to build parking. Um, but, you know, just excited over the, the growth. It's it's always so fun to see people learn how to ski or snowboard and get joy out of it. I mean, that really is important. And, and teaching, you know, my young lift employees, a lot of them that work on our magic carpet or our beginner areas or our ski school, you know, sometimes those aren't the, the glory jobs and I want to be on the big hill and everything else. And I love to work down there. I love to see people kind of progress and, and get it. And it, it takes a minute. You know, it's not always easy. And ski instructors are key to that and a, a good experience, you know, with your, your lift operators and, and attendance there to make someone stay good because it might be cold, it might be wet, and somebody's not used to this. And it's it's very rare to see people here locally as families that are older just start skiing to me it's always kind of you kind of are a skier you're not um it's hard to be kind of halfway because you've chosen to invest your money in this and your time and your weekends this is what we do we're going to ski and quite often when we see people that that have just started skiing their transplants to the area because i'll ask them a lot it's like why you know why are you picking up this sport right now and it's because they've moved to Utah. And, oh, that's what people do here. So we're going <laughs> to ski, which is fun. And, you know, they find us and hopefully we can give them a good experience. Um, but that that never gets old, I don't think, seeing people really enjoy it and seeing friends and associates get their kids going. And, you know, I went through that stage and I was a ski bum and a young skier that skied all the time and now I've got kids and we all see each other over on the magic carpet now. <laughs> We're not skiing the backside and skiing powder every day because we've got our five-year-old getting them going and and frankly for me personally I was a little selfish in my turns I think and I didn't think I'd enjoy skiing with my kids as much as I do but I've really enjoyed that and now now they're older and we just ski you know they're not learning anymore and we can go and now they're harassing me to go on ski trips to Japan and Whistler and Alaska so um, it's just fun to, to see people, you know, to continue to enjoy that and, and appreciate what we do. So what's next for, for Beaver Mountain besides parking? Anything <laughs> else we should be aware of? Anything on the horizon you um, want to share? The new facility, um, one thing kind of right away, we're, we're right up against the deadline looking at, and, and people are definitely going to notice this, but 
it's essentially resort management software, which I think will make people's lives at Beaver a lot easier, where everything is kind of based off of your pass. Um, we are a little archaic in some of our technology, and, and we're excited about this. It's a big change for us and how we're going to operate, and it's a little scary, but I think overall it'll help us manage ourselves immensely. But it's just taking that step to do that because we're very old school. Um, I recently mailed a couple of our lift tickets to Powder Magazine's photo editor because wickets and our style of ski pass is almost non-existent anymore. And every pass you get from our ticket office comes from Marge, hand-stamped, and you know she has a hard time giving up that personal touch a little bit. And she likes, we have a word of the day that's on the pass. And it may be somebody's birthday, you know, it could be powder, it could be anything. And that's the problem for her in moving to this newer technology is it's not as personable, you know, and people, like even our season passes, people keep them forever and we see them on social media and their Christmas decorations and you keep all, I mean, I think I've got most of my season passes from the time I was three years old, wow. um, which was a whole different product at that time. But immediately that's, that's happening. Um, and we are still looking hopefully in the next couple of years of building a new base lodge, which will be rental, retail, ski school, ticketing, possibly some food service, but it will enable us to enhance and enlarge the current food service because we'll gain some space in that facility as well. And then uh, possibly something over on the Marge's side in the way of facilities out of the main base area to, to service people mm -hmm. over there, restrooms wise and water. And, and all that's a little, little challenging Again, people don't realize, you know, we have to put in three miles of water line just to flush a toilet over there and yeah. getting power up a mountain. And we, and this is taken with mixed reviews sometimes, but we just had a meeting with Verizon about installing a cell tower on top of the mountain. And some people say, oh, I like coming up and being unplugged. But anymore, there's almost always a but, you know, but I like yeah. to be able to send a text or I like to do this or that. And right. that's a ways out and that may or may not happen. I think a lot of our guests will appreciate it. But personally, I think it's just a nice safety thing for travel in sure. Logan Canyon. You right. know, we see that all the time and we're kind of the the headquarters for the upper canyon and we'll see a lot of stuff happen up there and you know traffic accidents and backcountry issues and everything else but uh but that's that's the stuff on the near horizon i think and we're excited about it it's it's growing pains a little bit but it's necessary and i think our guests will appreciate it and a lot of our guests it's kind of a fine line between the family atmosphere and the small ski area feel that we have but still providing a good experience right well this has been great i've learned a lot I've gained an even bigger appreciation for everything that you do. Um, where can we stay in touch with you? How do we get a season pass? <laughs> How do we get up there? Um, season passes are great. We, uh, you know, we've met with students here recently. We're doing day on the quad tomorrow um, and, and kind of pimping our student pass. But our Logan office, which is just up the street next to Frederico's Pizza, opens mid-October. Um, Student season passes go on sale September 1st, so it's happening quickly, and that is the best deal going, and that's kids sixth grade through college. Um, that program's grown tremendously for us, thanks to you know Utah State and a lot of partnerships, I think. And um, students can buy their pass then for $345, which is frankly really cheap in this day and age, yeah. and that's an unlimited season pass. You can use it all you want. Um, wow. SkiTheBeave.com is the website, and we are all over social media, so you can stay current on all the social media channels and, and love to see content from people having fun at Beaver there as well. Well, that's great. Thanks for being here. Thanks yeah. for taking the time. Yeah, it was fun. 
Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more outdoor stories and content, connect with us on highlandermag.com. Thank you.